Turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Our text today is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray and ask God for His blessing on our study this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank You for the gift of Your written Word. May your spirit speak to our hearts now through the reading and preaching of that word and in our celebration of the sacrament. We ask through your spirit that we may be given the grace to see Jesus Christ, our only hope of salvation. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, uh, fifth grade and below, you can come up and join me. Wow, big group. All right, come on up. Squeeze in, make room. There you go. And a monkey, too. Not, I mean, not you, Isaac, what you're carrying. Yeah. All right, I got a question for you. What would you think if a rich person, and I mean mansion with a helicopter and a vacation home in France rich, what would you think if they invited you to a huge party at their house? Would you maybe be a little excited to go? Yeah? A lot. A lot excited. Okay. But, but so what if, what if they asked you, to come to their house for a party, but then they said, oh, but if you want to get in, you have to bring your own food. I'll have stuff for everybody else, but not for you. Oh, you'd be a little mad, okay. What else might you feel other than mad, sad? Yeah, I would think so too, okay. Okay, so what if you get to the party and it looks crazy fun. I mean, like, bounce houses, four of them, a pool with a slide, incredible food, unlimited cotton candy, a magician, those people who twirl like flaming torches and then they spray fire. What, what if they have all of that and the party favor, like the thing that you get to take home, is a pony and all the money that you would ever need to take care of that pony? What if it's that kind of party, but as you walk in, the host kind of pulls you off to the side, and and there's a little closet right by the front door, and he opens the door of the closet, and he kind of puts you into the closet, and he says, welcome to my house. Uh, Here's your spot. You, You can stay in here, but really none of that other stuff out there, none of that's for you. And then he walks out, and he closes the door behind him, and you're in the closet. It's just you hanging out with other people's jackets for the whole evening. What would you think? I would leave. Ah, you might want to leave. Yeah. Okay. You would not feel very welcome, would you? Last week, 
We talked about the promises that God makes to us in our baptism. He promised that sin won't separate us from him. He, he promises to bring us to himself through Jesus. But in the passage that we just read, Paul is saying that the Lord's Supper, what we're doing today, is, is doing something a little different. Eating the bread and drinking from the cup reminds us that God is a better host than the one in the story that I told you. Because when God invites you to be with him, he provides everything that we need because he gives us Jesus. Jesus himself did not hold anything back. He doesn't tell you, you have to bring the stuff. He gave his own, it sounds weird to us, but he gave his own body and blood on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and that we get welcomed into God's house, not just as guests, but as his very own children. But God is also a better host than the one in my story because he doesn't just let us in just a little bit, just inside, just to that front closet. He doesn't isolate us away from him when he, come, when he welcomes us. When we come to Jesus in faith, we enjoy everything, the whole party. Everything that God has to offer, he gives to you, both now and forever, in the age to come. He gives us himself, and he doesn't hold anything back. And so when the time comes for you to, to take those membership vows that we said earlier, to stand up in front of the church and say that that, that is what you believe, and when the elders say it's time for you to come to that table, then come remembering that Jesus did everything so that you could come there. And when you come to him in faith, you get everything that Jesus has to offer. He doesn't hold anything back. Because our God provides everything in Jesus and gives us all the blessings that come with him. That's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seat. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we are focusing on the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. You'll remember that for the last several weeks, we have been looking at the means of grace, those means that God has given to his people to strengthen and sustain their faith, the, the faith that, by which they first received the blessings of Christ and the faith which uh, they then continue to grow up in that salvation. And those means of grace are uh, primarily uh, his word, his sacraments, and Prayer. Now, there are other means of grace, but these are the, the principal means of grace that God has given to his people. And so we spent several weeks thinking about the word as a means of grace, a means by which our faith is, is not only called into being, it is through the word that we were made alive, the word is the imperishable seed of our new birth, but it is also through the word that we grow up in our salvation. The word is that pure spiritual milk that nourishes us to grow up towards maturity. And so we spent several weeks thinking about the word as a means of grace. And then last Sunday we turned our attention to the sacraments, beginning with the first of the New Testament sacraments, 
baptism. And we, we considered how baptism serves us. How we use our baptism to strengthen and sustain our faith. And this morning, we are going to be focusing on the other New Testament sacrament, the, the Lord's Supper that we will come to at the conclusion of this service. How does the supper strengthen and sustain our faith? That's the question before us this morning. And we will see that, that there are many aspects to the, uh, the efficacy of the supper. The, the supper sustains us as we remember and proclaim the Lord's death. It sustains us as we participate in his body and blood. And it sustains us as we anticipate his return to bring to completion the good work that he has begun. And so the supper serves us as a means of grace when it is seen as a memorial, as a participation, and as an anticipation. So let's begin with the supper as a memorial. Look again at what Paul writes in this paragraph here in the middle of chapter 11. He starts off by telling us that, that he delivered to the Corinthians what he had Received. So it is Paul who had planted the church there in Corinth, and it is Paul who had taught them about the supper. But notice, he, he says that the, the supper was not his idea. This isn't something that he came up with uh, to help the Corinthians remember. But, but rather, this is a meal that was instituted by Jesus himself. He says, for I received from the Lord, I received from Christ himself, what I also delivered to you. And what he received from the Lord is the testimony that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, that night when, when, uh, after he had eaten the Passover meal with his disciples, and we know it was a Passover meal because of, of the, the detail that the apologists give us, in, or the evangelists give us in the Gospels. They, they tell us that Jesus was, was eating this Passover meal with his disciples. And that in the midst of eating that Passover meal, that, that meal that looked back to God's great act of redemption in the Old Testament, that, that great act of bringing the people up out of Egypt, Jesus pointed them not only back to that act of redemption, but he said, what that act anticipated, what that act foreshadowed, I now proclaim to you as fulfilled in me. From now on, this meal will not look back to the Exodus, but rather from now on, in this meal, you will remember me. My body is the bread. My blood is the wine. And so this meal of, of bread and wine, Jesus says, you will from now on do in remembrance of me. It's what he says there in verse 24. Do this in remembrance of of me, And he says it again at the end of verse 25, do this in remembrance of me. So when we come to the table, we are remembering the Lord. We are, we are remembering his body and blood, which of course means we are remembering his death, which he says explicitly at the end of, of verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so here at the table, we are remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death. That's what this meal is about. Of course, that means that we are remembering and proclaiming the, the fact of his death. The, the fact that, that Jesus of Nazareth, 
was nailed to a Roman cross, that he died in space and time. We, we are remembering that, that fact, but more than that, we are remembering the significance of that historical event. And what is that significance? Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans. Remember what he says at the end of, of chapter 4. He says that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and raised again. For our justification. Jesus' death was for our sins. Jesus died because we were sinners separated from God and under his curse. He died to, to take away the record of debt that stood against us. That's what Paul says in his, his letter to the Colossians, that record of debt that condemned us, that record of debt that stood against us, that record of our sins, whereby we were justly deserving of his wrath and condemnation, that record has been nailed to his cross. It has been dealt with in his death. He was delivered up for our transgressions. He became a curse that we might be delivered from the curse. That was due to us for our sins. He became a curse that we might instead know his blessing. He who knew no sin became sin. The sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus' death is all about. Jesus' death is a substitutionary death. It is a death whereby he stood in our place taking the penalty of our sins. That we who were rightly condemned might instead be blessed. Not because of anything we had done, but because the full wrath of God had been poured out on another. On our substitute. On the Son who willingly took our place. And we know it was willingly because Jesus himself tells us, he says, this was the very purpose for which he came. Remember those famous words that we hear in Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for many. Jesus' death is the ransom price of our redemption. This is the very heart of the gospel. In fact, if you'll just turn a few pages ahead in 1 Corinthians, you'll, you'll come to chapter 15. And there in chapter 15, Paul gives us this glorious summary of the gospel. Again, using similar language. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. So here it is. This is the gospel. The gospel that I preached. The gospel I received myself from, from Jesus. And what is that? He says, I delivered to you. Same language. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Again, not a gospel he made up. But I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. According to God's promise, the promise of a Redeemer, the promise of one who would come and reconcile mankind to himself. And in accordance with that promise made in the Scriptures, Christ died for our sins and was buried and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the heart of the gospel. That's what this table is all about. This table is about the gospel. 
And remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death, we are remembering and proclaiming the good news of what God has done to reconcile sinners to himself. He did not leave us in the misery of our sin, but rather sent his Son that we might be redeemed and rescued from that misery and reconciled to him, made heirs of his coming kingdom. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that we remember and proclaim when we come to the table. We, we remember and, and proclaim it for ourselves. Here we are reminded of what we have known. We are reminded of what we have believed. We rehearse the gospel that is our hope. And that's important. You know how forgetful you are. You, you know how, how often we can, we can drift from the hope of this gospel. You know how, how often we can forget that every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. The, the circumstances of life in this fallen world before Christ's return, they can crush us, they can distract us. They can even blind us to the reality of what is ours in Christ. We can be scorched by the, se the searing heat of the sun of, of suffering in this life. We, we know that. We've, we've known it firsthand. And we can be distracted by the good things that this life offers, thinking that, that maybe they offer us real hope. Maybe real life is found there in the, in the material abundance of this world or in the pleasures that this world offers or in the prestige and the, the praise of men. And our faith can be choked. And Jesus says, no, remember and proclaim my death. Return again and again to the gospel and do it together. For we not only remember and proclaim this death to ourselves, but we remember and proclaim it to one another when we eat and feast together at the Lord's table. We are reminding one another. Sometimes you're not in a good place to remember. And you need the one sitting next to you to remember for you and to remind you of the truth. And there will be times when they need you to do the same for them. And so together, we come together to remember the good news of the gospel. That is what the table is all about. It's why Augustine referred to this sacrament as a visible, tangible word. This is the gospel made tangible. This is the gospel that we can pick up with our hands, that we can taste with our mouth, that we can smell. This is a gospel that we can taste and eat. It's, it's not a different gospel. Understand that. There's nothing going on at the table that's not proclaimed in the Word. This is the Word made visible. It offers no different grace. There's no special grace in the sacrament that you don't get from the Gospel. It is the grace of the Gospel. But it is the grace of the Gospel that we are receiving when we come to the table, when we eat and drink. Here, we are entering in to the gospel. We are participating in the gospel. We are hearing the gospel in a new and different way. And therefore, because we are participating in the gospel, the power of the gospel is at work. When we remember and proclaim, the power of the gospel does its thing. 
It makes us alive. It stirs our heart. It gives the growth. It satisfies our hunger and our thirst for for righteousness. It does that work of renewing our minds and transforming our lives that we might be conformed more and more and more to the image of the glory of the Son who has called us. So the first thing that you need to understand is that the the Supper is a, a means of grace because it is a memorial of the Gospel. It is a memorial of Christ's death for sinners. The death that was the ransom price of our redemption. The death whereby we were reconciled to the Father. And so yes, the supper is a memorial. But of course, it is more than a memorial. We we sometimes resist this idea of it being a memorial because we think, oh, it's more than a memorial. Yes, it is, but, but in order to be more, it has to first be. It is a remembering. It is a proclaiming. But because it is a remembering and a proclaiming of the very word of God, the gospel of God, which is his power for salvation, it is more than a mere memorial. We see this when we turn back to chapter 10. Turn back just a little bit to chapter 10. This is actually the the verse that we gave you to meditate upon as we entered into worship this morning. And the, the key verse, of course, is verse 16. Where Paul tells the Corinthians that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When we eat this bread, when we drink this cup, we are participating in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And he's he's actually asking rhetorical questions. Questions where the answer is is assumed to be yes. And, And Paul is assuming that the Corinthians know, of course you know that this meal is a participation. But notice the context. It is in the context of of speaking about idolatry that Paul makes this point. He he tells them in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the the key here. He's he's speaking to the Corinthians. He's calling on them to flee from idolatry. But but why? Why is idolatry coming up at this point? Well, this is part of a a larger discussion that actually began all the way back in chapter 8, I believe, uh, where he says in chapter 8, verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols. The Corinthians had, had sent Paul a, a letter with a, a series of questions. And throughout the book of Corinthians, Paul addresses those questions. And he, as he takes up each new topic, he begins with this, stu- this statement, now concerning, now concerning the question you asked about food offered to idols. And so Paul is discussing that subject. He, he's discussing this idea of, of food offered to idols. And you'll remember, to this point, he has said that it is perfectly uh, appropriate for believers to purchase meat that had been offered to idols in the market and to take it home and to, and to have it as their own meal. It's even appropriate to, to go to the house of unbelievers who have purchased meat in the market and to eat with them as, as they share fellowship with their neighbors. He, he said that is, there's no reason for a Christian to, to resist doing that. There's no re- reason for a Christian to, to decline, but... While it is appropriate and, and, uh, and uh, right for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols by another, he now turns to the Corinthians and says, but do not participate in the sacrifice itself. Do not participate in the sacrificial ceremony. If they, if they invite you to come to the ceremony where they are actually offering the meat, don't do that. Flee from that sort of idolatry. Why? 
Why, if it's appropriate for uh, the, the Christians to, to buy the meat, is it inappropriate for them to be there when the meat is, is offered? Paul says, because sacrificial meals have spiritual significance. Sacrificial meals have spiritual significance. This was true in the Old Testament. Look at verse 18 there of chapter 10. What does he write? He says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Those who are there participating in the sacrificial ceremony, they are participants in the altar. They are, they are participants in that sacrifice. The sacrifice and, and participation in the sacrificial ceremony has spiritual Significance. And this was true not only for Old Testament Israel, but it was also, it's also true for the people who are offering, these, uh, offering uh, sacrifices to these idols, to these false gods. Notice what he says. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. These sacrifices to idols, to, to false gods, are made to real spiritual powers. The people who make them have been deceived. They have been blinded to, to the reality of the one true God. But they know that there are real spiritual realities. There are real spiritual beings. And they are honoring them with their sacrifices. They're maybe trying to control them or they're maybe trying to manipulate them. They're trying to get them on their side. But there is something real that happens in idolatrous worship. Because there are real demonic powers. And a sacrificial meal has spiritual significance. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were engaging with God in real fellowship at the altar. And those who worship idols are engaging with real demonic spiritual powers when they worship. And Paul would have the Corinthians flee from such idolatry. And in this context, he makes the point that something similar, not exactly the same, but something similar happens at the table. This is not a sacrificial meal in the same way that, the, that there were sacrificial meals in the Old Testament. There is no new sacrifice being made when we come to the Lord's table. It is a remembrance of a, of a once-for-all completed sacrifice. That's why Paul uses a, a slightly different version, I think, of the, the language of, of participation. Our participation in the, the table is similar to but different than the participation of uh, the Old Testament Israelites in the, the sacrifices. It's, it's similar to but different than the participation of the pagans in, in their pagan sacrifices. But there is a parallel. And, what, and the point that Paul is making is that something spiritual happens when we come to the table. There is a real participation in Christ's once for all Sacrifice. There's a, a fellowship, a, a, a sharing. We are participating in the power and the blessing and the, the effect of what Christ has done in offering himself once for all time for the redemption of sinners. And so when we partake of the supper in faith, we are partaking of the benefits of Christ. That's mind-boggling. It's, it's mysterious. But, but don't let the mystery bowl you over too much because 
if you stop to think about it, the power of the word is mysterious too. The, the mystery is not limited to the table. The mystery is not limited to the, to the sacrifices. The mystery is the power of God at work. How does the word make one who is dead alive? I don't know. <laughs> because it's the power of God. How does, the, how does the word cause us to grow up in our salvation and strengthen us to, to comprehend with all the saints his, his love for us and enable us then to, to live out of that love to the praise of his glory? That's what the word does. That's what it means to call the word a means of grace. That is mysterious. And in exactly the same way, the supper is mysterious. God has ordained that when his people come to this table, when they eat and they drink in remembrance of his son, when they proclaim to themselves and to one another the Lord's death until he comes, God works. Something spiritual happens. You are truly nourished at the table. You are truly strengthened at the table. It is a real means of grace. Now, that doesn't mean that the supper works automatically. The, the benefits are received by faith. It's why right participation is required. As, as Paul says uh, uh, in chapter 11, we didn't read those verses. But, but in large measure, Paul is, is correcting an abuse of the supper that was taking place in the Corinthian church. And he says in the verse right before the verses that Sam read, he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I will not commend you for merely going through the motions of the supper. Merely going through the motions is not enough. You must come to the table in faith. Or as he says later, you must discern the Lord's body. You must truly remember the Lord's death. And you must remember that it was for you. And that, it, and that his death is your hope. His death is your life. We come to the table discerningly. But when we come to the table in faith, this is what I want you to see. This is, this is what I want you to grasp. When you come to the table in faith, you are a real participant at that table, in that meal, in the eating and drinking, in what Christ has done. You are a sharer in Christ's saving work. And so the meal is a means of grace because it is a memorial. It is a, a remembering and a proclaiming of Christ's death. And it is a memorial because just like in the, in the word, there is power in it. Something spiritual is taking place. As we remember and proclaim the Lord's death at the table, in the eating and the drinking, we are truly participants by faith in the body and the blood of Christ. And as we do that, we anticipate all that the table represents. I'm running short on time, so let me press ahead here. But notice again what, what Paul says in verse 26. He says that, that we do this until he comes. That's the anticipation. We, he, he says, you're going to continue to come to this table. You're going to continue to remember the Lord's uh, death at the table and the eating and the drinking of bread and, and wine until, until you receive everything that the table represents. Jesus himself said something similar, saying, I will not drink this cup again with you until we drink it together in the kingdom. So the supper encourages us to, to look back to Jesus' death, but encouraging us to look back, it also encourages us to look forward. Because the death that we look back to is a death that accomplished something. 
It is a death that secured something. It is a death that secured our full redemption. In Christ, through the virtue of his death, every spiritual blessing is now ours. But we do not yet possess the full inheritance. We're still waiting. We're still waiting for everything that has been secured for us in Christ. And so when we come to the table, we come, yes, remembering, but also anticipating, looking forward to our reception of its full benefits. And those benefits are represented here at the table. What does the table represent? The table represents that we have been made heirs of the kingdom. We have been invited into table fellowship with the king. We have been reconciled to God. And we now serve him as good and faithful servants. We who were once his enemies, the song says, have now been seated at his table. And so the supper serves us as a means of grace because it reminds us that all the benefits are ours in Christ. And it gives us a picture of those benefits in this meal that we now share, not only with one another, but with Christ and with his Father by the power of the Spirit as we come to this table. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? What does it, what does it mean for us to, to see the Lord's Supper as a real means of grace? A means by which God pours his grace into our lives that we might be strengthened and sustained in our faith. Three things. We could, we could add to this list, but, but hear these this morning. First, because the table is a real means of grace, we have to come to the table regularly. There's no prescription in the scriptures how often we are to come. He simply says, as often as you do. And there are many traditions throughout church history. Those who, who come yearly, as the Israelites did with the Passover in the Old Testament. There are those who, who come quarterly or monthly or weekly or even daily. All of these practices has been, have been followed throughout the history of the church. Our tradition here at Trinity is to come monthly to the table on the first Sunday of, of the month. That is not prescribed in heaven. That is what we have chosen to do. We choose to come to this table monthly, but we come to it regularly. We come to it regularly because it is a real means of grace. Not where we receive a different grace, but where we receive the grace of the gospel in a different way. But when we come, remember that you are to come discerningly. You are to come remembering the Lord's body, remembering his death. Remembering the significance of his death for you as a sinner who was far off, but who now through his blood has been brought near. You're to come in faith. And finally, you are to come joyfully. Doesn't mean frivolously. This is not a light thing. This is, this is momentous. This is weighty. This is profound. We are remembering the, the climax of human history, that moment in which God's son gave himself as the ransom price for sinners. It is profound, it is waiting, it is serious, but how can it not be joyful? It is not a funeral dirge to come to the table. It is not a time to, to, to focus exclusively on your own sin. Yes, remember your sin. Yes, confess your sin. Yes, remember your need of the table. But remember that the table has been provided. This is a blessing. Your sins have been covered. 
Your guilt has been removed as far as the east is from the west because a substitute, the very Son of God, has died in your place. And so we come to the table seriously, yes, but we come to the table joyfully because here we have fellowship with God in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so we're about to come to the table. Come seriously, but come joyfully. Because here in this meal, you remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when we come to this table, when we feast upon the bread and the wine, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. And all of the power of that gospel is at work in us to renew us and to transform us and to strengthen us and to sustain us. That we might go from here and live to the praise of his glory until he comes. And because God has given us such a means of grace. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, thank you for the table. Thank you for this means of grace. Thank you, Father, that by this meal we can remember and proclaim the gospel. And by this meal, Father, we can be strengthened and sustained in our faith to live as becomes followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.